A Bite of Stars, A Slug of Time and Thou. If you could collect up all the tears that have fallen in the history of the world, you would have not only a vast sheet of water, you would have the history of the world. But some such reflection as this occurred to J. Smith Lau, the psychodynamician, as he stood in the 139th sector of Inland, watching the brief and tragic love of the wild man and Charles Gunpat's daughter. Hidden behind a beech tree, Smithlau saw the wild man walking warily across the terrace. Gunpat's daughter, Ploy Ploy, stood at the far end of the terrace, waiting for him. It was the last day of summer in the last year of the 44th century. The wind that rustled Ploy Ploy's dress breathed leaves against her. It sighed round the fantastic and desolate garden like fate at a christening, ruining the last of the roses. Later, the tumbling pattern of petals would be sucked from paths, lawn, and patio by the steel gardener. Now it made a tiny tide round the wild man's feet as he stretched out his hand momentously to touch Ploy Ploy. Then it was that the tear glittered in her eyes. Hidden, fascinated, Smith Lyle, the psychodynamician, saw that tear. Except perhaps for a stupid robot, he was the only one who saw it. Only one. Who saw the whole episode. And although he was shallow and hard by the standards of other ages, he was human enough to sense that here, here on the graying terrace, was a little charade that marked the end of all that man had been. After the tear, of course, came the explosion. Just for a minute, a new wind lived among the winds of earth. Only by accident was Smith Lowe walking in Charles Gunpat's estate. He had come on a routine errand, as Gunpat's psychodynamician, of administering a hate brace to the old man. Oddly enough, as he swept in for a landing, leafing his vein down from the stratosphere, Smithlow had caught a glimpse of the wild man approaching Gunpat's estate. Now, under the slowing vein, the landscape was as neat as a blueprint. The impoverished fields made impeccable rectangles. Here and there, one robot machine or another kept nature to its own functional image. Not a pea potted without cybernetic supervision. Not a bee mumbled among stamens without radar check being kept of its course. Every bird had a number and a call sign, while among every tribe of ants marched the metallic teller ants, telltaling the secrets of the nest back to base. The old comfortable world of random factors had vanished under the pressure of hunger. Nothing living lived without control. The countless populations of previous centuries had exhausted the soil. Only the severest parsimony, coupled with fierce regimentation, produced enough nourishment for the present sparse population. The billions had died of starvation. The hundreds who remained lived on starvation's brink. In the sterile neatness of the landscape, Gunpat's estate looked like an insult. Covering five acres, it was a little island of wilderness. Tall and unkempt elms fenced the perimeter, encroaching on the lawns and the house. The house itself, the chief one in Sector 139, was built of massive stone blocks. It had to be strong to bear the weight of the servo mechanisms which, apart from Gunpat and his daughter Ploy Ploy, were its only occupants. 
It was just as Smith Loud dropped below tree level that he thought he saw a human figure plodding towards the estate. Now, for a multitude of reasons, this was very unlikely. The great material wealth of the world being now shared among comparatively few people, nobody was poor enough to have to walk anywhere. Man's increasing hatred of nature, spurred by the notion it had betrayed him, would make such a walk purgatory, unless the man were insane, like ploy ploy. Dismissing the figure from his thoughts, Smith Loud dropped the vein onto a stretch of stone. He was glad to get down. It was a gusty day, and the piled cumulus he had descended through had been full of air pockets. Gunpat's house, with its sightless windows, its towers, its endless terraces, its unnecessary ornamentation, its massive porch, glowered at him like a forsaken wedding cake, and there was activity at once. Three-wheeled robots approached him from different directions, swiveling a light atomic weapons at him as they drew near. Nobody, Smith Loud thought, could get in here uninvited. Gunpat was not a friendly man, even by the unfriendly standards of his time. Say who you are, demanded the leading machine. It was ugly and flat, vaguely resembling a toad. I'm J. Smith Lau, psychodynamician to Charles Gunpat, Smith Lau replied. He had to go through this procedure every visit. As he spoke, he revealed his face to the machine. It grunted to itself, checking picture and information with its memory. Finally, it said... You are J. Smithlow, psychodynamician to Charles Gunpat. What do you want? Cursing its monstrous slowness, Smithlow told the robot, I have an appointment with Charles Gunpat at ten hours. And waited while that was digested. You have an appointment with Charles Gunpat at ten hours, the robot finally confirmed. Come this way. It wheeled about with surprising grace. Speaking to the other two robots, reassuring them, repeating mechanically to them, This is J. Smith Lau, psychodynamician to Charles Gunpat. He has an appointment with Charles Gunpat at ten hours, in case they had not grasped these facts. Meanwhile, Smith Lau spoke to his vein. A part of the cabin, with him in it, detached itself from the rest, and lowered wheels to the ground, becoming a mobile sedan. Carrying Smith Lau, it followed the other robots. Automatic screens came up, covering the windows, as Smithlow moved into the presence of other humans. He could only see and be seen via telescreens. Such was the hatred, equals fear, man bore for his fellow man. He could not tolerate them regarding him direct. One following another, the machines climbed along the terraces, through the great porch, where they were covered in a mist of disinfectant, along a labyrinth of corridors, and so into the presence of Charles Gunpat. Gunpat's dark face on the screen of his sedan showed only the mildest distaste for the sight of his psychodynamician. He was usually as self-controlled as this. It told against him at his business meetings where the idea was to cow one's opponents by splendid displays of rage. And for this reason, Smithlow was always summoned to administer a hate brace when something important loomed on the day's agenda. Smithlow's machine maneuvered him within a yard of his patient's image, much closer than courtesy required. I'm late, Smithlow began, matter-of-factly, because I could not bear to drag myself into your offensive presence one minute sooner. I hoped that if I left it long enough, some happy accident might have removed that stupid nose from your, what shall I call it, face? Oh, it's still there, with two nostrils sweeping like rat holes into your skull. I've often wondered, Gunpat, don't you ever catch your big feet in those holes and fall over? 
Observing his patient's face carefully, Smith now saw only the faintest stir of irritation. No doubt about it, Gunpat was a hard man to rouse. Fortunately, Smith Lau was an expert in his profession. He proceeded to try the insult subtle. But of course, you would never fall over, he proceeded, because you are too depressingly ignorant to know up from down. You don't even know how many robots make five. <laughs> I mean, why, when it was your turn to go to the Capitol, to the mating center, I mean, you didn't even realize that was the one time a man has to come out from behind his screen. You thought you could make love by telly. <laughs> what was the result? One dotty daughter. One dotty daughter, Gunpat. Think how your rivals at automation must titter at that, sonny boy. Potty Gunpat is dotty daughter. They'll be saying, can't control your genes, they'll be saying. The taunts were having their desired effect. A flush spread over the image of Gunpat's face. There's nothing wrong with Ploy Ploy except she's a recessive. You said that yourself, he snapped. He was beginning to answer back. That was a good sign. His daughter was always a soft spot in his armor. A recessive, Smithlow sneered. How far back can you recede? I mean, she's gentle. You hear me? You with hair in your ears? She wants to love. <laughs> he bellowed with ironic laughter. Oh, it's obscene, gunny boy. She couldn't hate to save her life. She's no better than a savage. I mean, she's worse than a savage. She's mad. She's not mad, Gunpat said, gripping both sides of his screen. At this rate, he'd be primed for the conference in ten more minutes. Not mad? The psychodynamician asked, his voice assuming a bantering note. No, no, Ploy Ploy is not mad. The mating center only refused her the right even to breed, that's all. Imperial government only refused her the right to a televote, that's all. United traders only refused her a consumption rating, that's all. Education Incorporated only restricted her to beta recreations, oh, that's all. And she's a prisoner here because she's a genius, is that it? You're crazy, Gunpat. If you don't think that girl's stark staring loony, you'll be telling me next out of that grotesque flapping mouth that she hasn't got a white face. Gunpat made gobbling sounds. You dare to mention that, he gasped. What if her face is that color? You ask such fool questions, it's hardly worthwhile bothering with you, Smith Lyle said mildly. Your trouble, Gunpat, is that your big bone head is totally incapable of absorbing one single, simple, historical fact. Ploy Ploy is white because she's a dirty little throwback. Our ancient enemies were white. They occupied this part of the globe, England and Europe, until the 24th century when our ancestors rose from the east and took from them the ancient privileges they had so long enjoyed at our expense. Our ancestors intermarried with such of the defeated that survived. In a few generations, the white strain was obliterated, diluted, lost. A white face has not been seen on earth since before the terrible age of overpopulation. Fifteen hundred years, let's say. And then, then little Lord Recessive Gunpat throws one up neat as you please. What do they give you at the mating center, sonny boy? A cave woman? Gunpat exploded in fury, shaking his fist at the screen. You're sat, Smithlow, he snarled. This time you've gone too far, even for a dirty, rotten psycho. Get out! Go on! never come back again. Abruptly, he bellowed to his auto-operator to switch him over to the conference. He was just in a ripe mood to deal with automotion and its fellow crooks. As Gunpat's irate image faded from the screen, Smithlow sighed and relaxed. The hate brace was accomplished. It was the supreme compliment to his profession to be dismissed by a patient at the end of a session. Gunpat would be all the keener to re-engage him next time. All the same, 
Smithlau felt no triumph. In his calling, a thorough exploration of human psychology was needed. He had to know exactly the sorest points in a man's makeup. By playing on those points, deftly enough, he could rouse the man to action. And without being roused, men were helpless prey to lethargy. Bundles of rags carried round by machines. The ancient drives had died and left them. Smithlau sat where he was, gazing into both past and future. In exhausting the soil, man had exhausted himself. The psyche and a vitiated topsoil could not exist simultaneously. It was as simple and as logical as that. Only the failing tides of hate and anger lent man enough impetus to continue at all, else he was just a dead hand across his mechanized world. So this is how a species becomes extinct, thought Smithlau, and wondered if anyone else had thought it. Perhaps imperial government knew all about it, but was powerless to do anything. After all, what more could you do than was being done? Smithlau was a shallow man, inevitably, in a caste-bound society so weak it could not face itself. Having discovered the terrifying problem, he set himself to forget it, to evade its impact, to dodge any personal implications it might have. With a grunt to his sedan, he turned about and ordered himself home. Since Gunpat's robot had already left, Smithlau traveled back along the way he had come. He was trundled outside and back to the vein, standing silent below the elms. Before the sedan incorporated itself back into the vein, a movement caught Smithlau's eye. Half concealed by the veranda, Ploy Ploy stood against a corner of the house. With a sudden impulse of curiosity, Smithlau got out of the sedan. The open air, besides being in motion, stank of roses and clouds and green things turning dark with the thought of autumn. It was frightening for Smithlau, but an adventurous impulse made him go on. The girl was not looking in his direction. She peered towards the barricade of trees, which cut her off from the world. As Smithlau approached, she moved round to the rear of the house, still staring intently. He followed with caution taking advantage of the cover afforded by a small plantation. A metal gardener nearby continued to wield shears along a grass verge, unaware of his existence. Ploy Ploy now stood at the back of the house. Here a rococo fancy of ancient Italy had mingled with a Chinese genius for fantastic portal and roof. Balustrades rose and fell, stairs marched through circular arches, gray and azure eaves swept almost to the ground, but all was sadly neglected. Virginia Creeper, already hinting at its glory to come, strove to pull down the marble statuary. Troughs of rose petals clogged every sweeping staircase. All of this formed the ideal background for the forlorn figure of Ploy Ploy. Except for her delicate pink lips, her face was utterly pale. Her hair was utterly black, but hung straight secured only once at the back of her head, and then falling in a tail to her waist. She looked mad, indeed, her melancholy eyes peering towards the great elms as if they would scorch down everything in their line of vision. Smithlau turned to see what she stared at so compellingly. The wild man was just breaking through the thickets round the elm boles. A sudden shower came down, rattling among the dry leaves of the shrubbery. Like a spring shower, it was over in a flash. During the momentary downpour, Ploy Ploy never shifted her position. The wild man never looked up. Then the sun burst through, cascading a pattern of elm shadow over the house, and every flower wore a jewel of rain. Smithlau thought of what he had thought in Gunpat's room, 
Now he added this writer. It would be so easy for nature, when parasite man was extinct, to begin again. He waited tensely, knowing a fragment of drama was about to take place before his eyes. Across the sparkling lawn, a tiny track thing scuttled, pogoing itself up steps and out of sight through an arch. It was a perimeter guard, off to give an alarm. In a minute, it returned. Four big robots accompanied it. One of them, Smithlow recognized as a toad-like machine that he challenged his arrival. They threaded their way purposefully among the rose bushes, five different shaped menaces. The metal gardener muttered to itself, abandoned its clipping, and joined the procession toward the wild man. He hasn't a dog's chance, Smithlow said to himself. The phrase held significance. All dogs declared redundant had long since been exterminated. By now, the wild man had broken through the barrier of the thicket and come to the lawn's edge. He broke off a leafy branchlet and stuck it into his shirt so that it partially obscured his face. He tucked another branch into his trousers. As the robots drew nearer, he raised his arms above his head, a third branch clasped in his hands. The six machines encircled him. The toad robot clicked, as if deciding on what it should do next. Say who you are, it demanded. I'm a rose tree, the wild man said. Rose trees bear roses. You do not bear roses. You are not a rose tree, the steel toad said. Its biggest, highest gun came level with the wild man's chest. My roses are dead already, the wild man said, but I have leaves still. Ask the gardener if you do not know what leaves are. This thing is a thing with leaves, the gardener said at once in a deep voice. I know what leaves are. I have no need to ask the gardener. Leaves are the foliage of trees and plants which give them their green appearance, the toad said. This thing is a thing with leaves, the gardener repeated, adding to clarify the matter. The leaves give it a green appearance. I know what things with leaves are, said the toad. I have no need to ask you, gardener. It looked as if an interesting, if limited, argument would break out between the two robots. But at this moment, one of the other machines spoke. This rose tree can speak, it said. Rose trees cannot speak, the toad said at once. Having produced this pearl, it was silent, probably mulling over the strangeness of life. Then it said slowly, Therefore, either this rose tree is not a rose tree, or this rose tree did not speak. This thing is a thing with leaves, began the gardener again, but it is not a rose tree. Rose trees have stipules. This thing has no stipules. It is a breaking buckthorn. The breaking buckthorn is also known as the berry-bearing alder. This specialized knowledge extended beyond the vocabulary of the toad. A strained silence ensued. I am a breaking buckthorn, the wild man said, still holding his pose. I cannot speak. At this, all the machines began to talk at once, lumbering around him for better sightings as they did so, and barging into each other in the process. Finally, the toad's voice broke above the metallic babble. Whatever this thing with leaves is, we must uproot it. We must kill it, it said. You may not uproot it. That is only a job for gardeners, the gardener said, setting its shears rotating, telescoping out a mighty scythe. It charged at the toad. Its crude weapons were ineffectual against the toad's armor. The latter, however, realized that they had reached a deadlock in their investigations. We will retire to ask Charles Gunpat what we shall do, it said. Come this way. Charles Gunpat is in conference, the scout robot said. Charles Gunpat must not be disturbed in conference. Therefore, we must not disturb Charles Gunpat. Therefore, we must wait for Charles Gunpat, said the metal toad imperturbably. He led the way close by where Smith Lau stood, 
they all climbed the steps and disappeared into the house. Smithlow could only marvel at the wild man's coolness. It was a miracle he still survived. Had he attempted to run, he would have been killed instantly. That was a situation the robots had been taught to cope with. Nor would his double talk, inspired as it was, have saved him had he been faced with only one robot, for a robot is a single-minded creature. In company, however, they suffer from a trouble which often afflicts human gatherings to a lesser extent, a tendency to show off their logic at the expense of the object of the meeting. Logic. That was the trouble. It was all robots had to go by. Man had logic and intelligence. He got along better than his robots. Nevertheless, he was losing the battle against nature. And nature, like the robots, used only logic. It was a paradox against which man could not prevail. Directly the file of machines had disappeared into the house, the wild man ran across the lawn and climbed the first flight of steps, walking toward the motionless girl. Smithlow slid behind a beech tree to be nearer to him. He felt like a pervert, watching him without an interposed screen, but he could not tear himself away. The wild man was approaching Ploy Ploy now, moving slowly across the terrace, as if hypnotized. You were resourceful, she said to him. Her white face carried pink in its cheeks now. I've been resourceful for a whole year to get to you, he said. Now his resources had brought him face to face with her. They failed and left him standing helplessly. He was a thin young man, thin and sinewy, his clothes worn, his beard unkempt. How did you find me, Ploy Ploy asked. Her voice, unlike the wild man's, barely reached Smithlow. A haunting look, as fitful as the autumn, played on her face. It was some sort of instinct, as if I heard you calling, the wild man said. Everything that could possibly be wrong with the world is wrong. Perhaps you are the only woman in the world who loves. Perhaps I'm the only man who could answer. So I came. It was natural. I could not help myself. I always dreamed someone would come, she said. And for weeks I felt known that you were coming. Oh, my darling. We must be quick, my sweet, he said. I once worked with robots. Perhaps you could see I knew them. When we get away from here, I have a robot plane that will take us right away, anywhere. An island, perhaps, where things are not so desperate. But we must go before your father's machines return. He took a step towards Ploy Ploy. She held up her hand. Wait, she implored him. It's not so simple. You must know something. The, the mating center refused me the right to breed. You ought not to touch me. I hate the mating center, the wild man said. I hate everything to do with the ruling regime. Nothing they've done can affect us now. Ploy Ploy had clenched her hands behind her back. The color had left her cheeks. A fresh shower of dead rose petals blew against her dress, mocking her. It's so hopeless, she said. You don't understand. His wildness was humbled now. I threw up everything to come to you, he said. I only desire to take you into my arms. Is that all? Really all? All you want in the world? She asked. I swear it. He said simply, then come here and touch me, Ploy Ploy said. That was the moment at which Smithlow saw the tear glint in her eye. The hand the wild man extended to her was lifted to her cheek. She stood unflinching on the gray terrace, her head high, and so the loving hand gently brushed her countenance. The explosion was almost instantaneous. Almost. 
It took the traitorous nerves and ploy ploy's epidermis only a fraction of a second to analyze the touch as belonging to another human being and convey their findings to the nerve center. There, a neurological block implanted by the mating center and all mating rejects to guard against such a contingency went into action at once. Every cell in ploy ploy's body yielded up its energy in one consuming gasp. It was so successful that the wild man was also killed by the detonation. Yes, thought Smithlow. He had to admit it was neat and, again, logical. In a world on the brink of starvation, how else stop undesirables from breeding? Logic against logic. Man's pitted against nature's. That was what caused all the tears of the world. They made off through the dripping plantation, heading back for the vein, anxious to be away before the robots reappeared. The shattered figures on the terrace were still already half covered with leaves and petals. The wind roared like a great triumphant sea in the treetops. It was hardly odd that the wild man did not know about the neurological trigger. Few people did, bar psychodynamicians and the mating council, and of course the rejects themselves. Yes, Ploy Ploy knew what would happen. She had chosen deliberately to die like that. Always said she was mad, Smithlow told himself. He chuckled as he climbed into his machine, shaking his head over her lunacy. It would be a wonderful point to rile Charles Gunpat with next time he needed hate brace. Hello, that was All the World's Tears, written by Brian Aldiss in 1957. With me to discuss it is my fellow host, Mark Sinker, and our very special guest, Rebecca Levine. Mark, can you tell us, well, first of all, what did what do you make of this story? Um, I wanted to pick something by Aldis, partly because I know him best as a uh, an anthologist, and we, you know, our program is about short stories, and of the books that I read as a kid and have on my shelves now, a good part of them are in fact anthologized by him with with neat and eloquent little introductions. Um, And uh, so I wanted to find something which, you know, so that we could get him into it and talk about him. And in fact, that that proved to be a a harder, harder task than I quite expected, partly for the the routine problem that we've had, that we actually have to pick quite short stories to to cover on this programme. But I, I came on this one and halfway through having not really recognised it to start with, sort of feeling it was vaguely familiar, suddenly realised I knew how it ended Mm -hmm. and realised that it was one that I had a very clear uh, memory of the ending of it. And so I have um, a sort of warm feeling towards it because I think I liked it very much when I was 11 or 12. And listening back, especially listening back with with someone else's interpretation uh, i mean it strikes me that it is actually a story which is kind of ideal for someone <laughs> who's maybe in their early teens it, which is that it's quite sentimental but it's also quite sort of cynical but neither of those in a particularly deep sort of way and that it's uh it's sort of tidy and clever in the way it actually tells its story and uh I had always thought it was a a mid-70s story just because the collection that 
I had it in was published in the mid 70s. It was a New English Library uh, collection called Comic Inferno. And uh, and it had a very 70s cover. And so I just, you know, never really thought about it. And it wasn't until a couple of days ago when I was actually looking up, I found it was, it must be one of his earliest science fiction stories. His his novel Nonstop was published in 1958, the year after. And everything that I've read is that that was his first science fiction uh, actual publication that he, he'd done um, much more realist stuff before then either to do with the army or just to do with sort of suburban life in the in his published life in the few years before that he'd, he'd been a soldier in second world war and then essentially became a writer pretty much in the early 50s as a young man and and ever since has been either a, a writer or an editor or a critic newspaper critic i mean he's always been in in that sort of world um so I don't know how typical this is of him. I don't know, and and I think it probably isn't. It 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 fits a bit better into the project as we were thinking of it in the first series, which was was picking stories which are on the absolute lip of the new wave, but aren't yet new wave. And I think it it sort of fits a bit into that. Um, Bex, if I can call you that. Um, of course you can. Um, have you, had you read much Aldous before you read this story? Uh, none at all. Uh-huh. Um, what did you make of it? Well, it was very interesting for me, actually, because I thought it was very well written. I thought it had a particular a beautiful sense of place. I, Right from the sort of first paragraph, I, I felt myself there, and yet I didn't enjoy it even slightly. <laughs> that's, that's, that's interesting. Why do you why do you say that? Well, it was it was almost an epiphany for me actually because it made me think about what what it is I do look for in sci-fi. And, and I read a lot of sci-fi short stories when I was a kid, mm-hmm. um, and then sci-fi books. And then I really stopped, and I read very little now. Um, and among the few authors I do read are uh, Ian M. Banks. And it occurred to me that what I like about him is I, I want to visit the world he describes, and that that I, I see sci-fi as, as a chance to be a vicarious tourist in in other worlds. In the same way that I enjoy fantasy, um, although I don't read a tremendous amount of that anymore either. Uh, and I just didn't want to be in this world, and I didn't want to be with these rather loathsome people. And, and, and they while, are very loathsome, aren't they? Yeah. And while I thought they were terribly well described, I, I didn't want to spend time in their company, and so nothing drew me in. And I didn't care about them. Of course, I didn't care what happened to them. Um, and that that gave me no um, narrative drive through the story. I'd had no incentive to reach the end. To, so all this great scene setting, sort of for naught, in your opinion. Well, I'd, I'd, I wouldn't like to say for nothing because I can see that it would appeal to other people. It's just for me personally, it's not what I'm looking for. You know, but I, I think that the short story genre generally, and this is the wrong show to say it on, <laughs> is not is not my thing because uh, uh, one of the reasons as a child I t- moved over from reading sci-fi to moving fantasy is that I think this is a gross generalisation but, but sci-fi tends to be the the, um, the literature of ideas and fantasy is much more character driven and I came to care much more about character as I, as I sort of hit, got hit adolescence and, and beyond and short stories clearly don't have time to develop character although I think the characters are very well described in this and one feels one knows them as much as you can after so, so short a time but, but they don't develop, they don't do the things that characters do in, in good novels and so it fails to hold my interest. What was it about the, the scene setting that you liked? Um, I just think it, it's I think the secret of, of great writing generally is, is the telling detail and he, he's a master of that. He, he picks the particular images that, that that instantly capture a sort of the melancholy feel of the place. I think the description of the, of the rose 
blossoms blowing against her dress was particularly powerful. Um, I, I just I could I felt damp reading the story, and I think that's quite a powerful achievement. There, there's something to when I was reading this, I <clears throat> I felt like it was a it seemed like a western to me in some way. There was something about I guess the roughness of the of the the society, um, the the bleakness of the outlook. Uh, people seemed very isolated, seemed very kind of hard bitten. Um, no, I think you're probably right, and that's interesting because westerns is the one film genre I can't abide, and that probably ties in. It's the same sensibility, isn't it? So yeah, I think you're absolutely right, and I think the the voice you chose to read it in was completely the right one, even though I would never have imagined it myself when I was reading it. Well, I got to tell you, it was sort of hard to find a tone for it because when – I don't know how you guys reacted to this, but the first um, maybe page of this story I found really difficult to um, – it felt oblique. It felt like it was resisting me. It was hard to tell what was going on. Um, I could tell something very vivid was happening, but I didn't quite know what. Well, he does a, quite a strange thing, doesn't he? He uh – he does a kind of, um, I can't think what the right word is, but uh, flash forward to explain what's going to happen in the whole story. And so everything subsequently, when he's telling the, the actual story, is a unfolding of the thing that he's he's given you in the first two or three paragraphs. Well, th- there's this very old-fashioned thing that he does, it, at least in my, in, in my mind, in the second, maybe the um, the um, the second paragraph, uh, it's sort of it's sort of like a, a very old-fashioned storyteller. The way he says, um, he stood in the 139th sector of inland, watching the brief and tragic love of the wild man and Charles Gunpat's daughter. It's it's like something that would be written on a poster advertising like an old-fashioned carnival show or something. The brief and the, yeah. you know, <laughs> like, and and it and it that felt very gothic yes. to me in a way. Yeah. Well, I mean, his I I, I, I don't know what his expertise was at the time but subsequently Aldous has done a lot of um a lot of writing which is taking up classic gothic uh novels the Mary Shelley's Frankenstein Dracula a lot of H.G. Wells who's arguably a very gothic writer um and and re uh, reinterpreting the story from some other um perspective and He's, uh, yeah, I think I think it is a it's a territory that he is uh, interested in because I think it's uh, in it's a for him it's actually a curiously British sort of angle on science fiction, which is interesting because I don't think this is a um, a typically British story at all. I think one of the things that it reminds me of is actually Frank Herbert, who we. Um, who we read a story of in the last series? Uh, Why do you say that? Well, it doesn't. It doesn't. It's not like that particular story, but it's like other stories of Herbert's because Herbert was very interested in uh, ecology and ecological disaster. And uh, this particularly reminds me of a book called The Green Brain, which is um, based on a. That's fantastic. We did we did a story in our last series called The, the Red, Red Brain. Brain. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think he may well have known that story as well. But The Green Brain is, is green because green is the eco-colour. And mm. it's based on this um, sort of folk media myth that came out of communist China in the 50s, which is that um, this, you know, advanced country, which was um, streaking ahead of all rivals, communist China, had um, exterminated the common housefly 
in its uh, drive to modernise the planet. And uh, which seems to have been a complete, just made up. They said, yes, we're, we're getting on with this and you uh, decadent Westerners are nowhere with this task. And they seem just to have said it and not actually got... Certainly the common housefly seems hale and hearty <laughs> as we speak. Um, and the green brain is, is about the cataclysmic um, consequences for the Earth as a whole as um, rational modern society um, eliminates all kinds of levels of the ecosphere, uh, but particularly insects, and the insects um, come together as a great green brain and revolt. But that's the, what what this reminds me of. It's this sort of stripped sense of catastrophe and um, them having to look back on something that um, supposedly civilised society did, which they're having to put pieces back together i find i find i don't know about you guys but i thought that the setup the ecological setup was so strange you've got um <laughs> i mean apparently there's no food but there's plenty of everything else everyone can ride around in spaceships but there's no food yeah i, I wasn't I wasn't convinced by the world, but for me it was more that the, the social arrangements, which I didn't believe would ever come into existence. Um, I mean, I, I studied uh, social anthropology for my degree, which I found tremendously helpful and actually came to start writing fantasy and science fiction because it gives you a sense of how societies can be or, or, or can't be put together. And I've also recently done a, a diploma and studied um, evolutionary psychology, which, again, sort of takes you in the same direction. Well, there's a lot of psychology in this story. Actually, mm. in, the, in the two set pieces... Um um, the, the 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 hate brace conversation, as well as the uh, the the double talking with the wild man and the robots, they're both sort of using psychology to get what they want. Yeah. What, did you, what did you make of that? I have to say, the hate brace one just made me think of Monty Python's argument sketch. It sort of failed to <laughs> failed to fully draw in, fully draw me into it. But I I didn't find those sort of psychologically unconvincing. I found the idea of a society in which people have no social contact unconvincing. We, I don't think we'd be people anymore if we lived like that. But well, I, that, that's, that, I think that's a really interesting point because it's almost as if he's rejecting humanism with this story. Mm. He's saying that things can actually change so much that society can change to where biologically we're the same, but people simply don't act in ways that are recognizably human. Yeah, I suppose I'm, I'm not a blank slatist, so I don't believe that people could be encultured into a society like that. I believe that we have pretty fundamental drives, which it would be hard to see how we could evolve away from in order to not really care about other people enough to mate, to not have a sex drive, to, to not be driven by anything but anger. Anger is obviously a very useful emotion, but, but it's one of a suite of emotions which, which guide us. And on its own, I think it, it wouldn't be enough. Right, str- well, the strange thing about it is that it doesn't seem that actually... It, I mean, if his job is to make people hate, it seems like they've decided socially that hate is the fuel of the society. But they can't actually get it on themselves. They have to um, have it inculcated by, you know, hiring this guy to go and make them angry so that they wouldn't actually be anything without him. So the society runs on hate, but the hate has to be kind of jimmied up from nothing. And it it, it doesn't... I mean, I think the, basically it's a satire anyway, so it's not meant to make sense. It's meant to be a, an absurd picture of a strange, etiolated society, which, as uh, Smithlow says, is 
is coming to an end really i mean this is the the last they're the last humans and ploy ploy is is the last woman who loves and uh the wild man is presumably the last wild man i i really really can't quite picture what the wild man looks like i mean i sort of look, think of him as like looking like a gorilla which makes no sense at all and that's how i thought of him when i was reading it as a kid oh i sort of thought it, i sort of saw him as a as kind of a classic romantic hero i have to say <laughs> i had a firm image of him until i read the part where it said he used to work with robots and suddenly he wasn't at all what i'd been imagining <laughs> and i just couldn't picture him at all some sort of it specialist gone horribly wrong <laughs> talking in the, in the break there about how this uh, story has got some things in common with Brave New World, um, this mating center, and everything is centrally controlled. Um, everything. The ants are controlled. Um, oh, yeah, I love the, t- the teller ant. Is a really nice... The tattletale ant. <laughs> the little robot ant that they put with the other ants just to check out that the other ants are behaving properly. <laughs> but don't they say in the story that this is a society of hundreds 
of people. Did they say that? Yeah, no, it's t- it says there's there's next to nobody left, and there's just land and and these strange robot-tended gardens. I think. I mean, it, it just it conjures up this this image of the the ruling council is like two guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. She's not having any. <laughs> yeah, exactly. She probably dissed him one time. You know. Well, she didn't have any with them, did she? Um. It's funny though because uh, this is obviously quite a, a very dystopian view of the future. But I, I probably was reading it wrongly as as a teenager. But I was quite liked the sound of Brave New World. I always thought that'd be quite a jolly place to live. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone knew their place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But they had a good time. But people in this world clearly aren't enjoying themselves even slightly. No. Um, now, um, Bex, you you write science fiction, and you've written uh, a dystopian book yourself. Yeah, I've written a book called Kill or Cure, which is published by Abaddon. It's, it's part of a, a, a shared world series they do called the um, Afterblight Chronicles, and mine was the second. Oh, what, sorry, what is a shared world? Um, it's one writer or, or the editor and a group of writers create a world, and then the book's all written within that world. Um, I see, okay. So uh, the dystopia I was writing wasn't created by me. It was it was a it was a viral apocalypse, and it was the after effects of of this. So I sort of inherited that from the from the first writer. Um, but within that, I had the freedom to write whatever story I wanted, and, and I found, and not necessarily deliberately, that the story I wanted to tell was was about precisely what I was talking about before: is how, how does society function um, when only uh, I think it was three percent of the world's population is is left. Um, and I'd, I'd been, it was right in the middle of when I was studying evolutionary psychology, so those ideas were very much at the forefront of my mind. In fact, one of my villains in it is an evolutionary psychologist because I reckoned she'd know what to do in those circumstances when other people would be floundering. She'd have a sense of how people would respond. And, uh, and probably inappropriately for the kind of pulp fiction it was, I, I talked about sort of Hobbes' Leviathan and, and what happens when the state no longer has a monopoly on, on violence. What does happen when the state no longer has a monopoly on violence? Um, Life becomes in you know, a nasty, brutish, and short. Yeah. Um, but but I, what I want to write about was how do you how do you reconstruct society from that? Because the previous book had looked at sort of decaying metropolises, and I, I wanted to do something different, obviously, to, to take it in a different direction. And, and I wrote about a character who was um, recreating society in the Caribbean. And what I realised as I was writing it was that the scarce resource in that world would be people and particularly people with expertise and this was a sort of pirate society that, that kidnapped people from all over the world and brought them there uh, and it, again it wasn't a terrible thing because they had a good life but they had no freedom um, and, I, and I thought that seemed vaguely plausible to me Now this is a world you'd like to visit? I mean... <laughs> no, well that, that was it's quite interesting because I, I found myself quite resistant to writing that book when I first took it and the editor there asked me if I'd be interested in writing a sequel to the the book and the first book, which I thought was very good, and, and like any author, obviously offered the chance to write a book. I said yes, um, but then when I came to actually start plotting it and start thinking about it, I, I did find it hard. It's probably the hardest thing I've written, and, and it really was reading this short story that made me realise why. That precisely it is because it wasn't a world I wanted to be in, and, and it, I think in the end I managed to create characters I did want to be around, and that for me was a saving grace. And I I cared about them quite deeply as you have to about your own character otherwise why are you bothering um and that and that carried me through but but no it was it was tough to write in that world because it didn't it didn't excite me so how did you make it exciting um i think because it gave me a chance to talk about big ideas which i'm sure wasn't at all what the range was intended for (laughs) but you have to make your own fun and uh and also because i i completely inadvertently I'd, i'd written 
uh, a lesbian character in there. Um, and I thought, I mean, this, this book's aimed at teenage boys predominantly. I thought, have a bit of lesbian titillation in there, never go amiss. <laughs> but what I ended up writing was was a love story between that character and my lead female character. Uh, and I hadn't intended that. That wasn't in my plot synopsis at all, but it, it just came through in what I was writing. That And that love story also also carried me through because I wanted them to have a happy ending. Mm-hmm. I won't say whether they do or not. They don't. Can you tell us that they don't blow each other up? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> I like the the hedging there. <laughs> um, so you've talked a little bit about the mise en scène on, uh, of this, the the, yeah. the stage setting, and the the lovely sort of descriptions of these these rose petals, and um, and but you said you didn't, you couldn't really get into the characters. You didn't want to visit this place. Is there anything? What else can can you say about the craft of this? Was there something um, else that you liked about the way that it was written? Um, you, were there problems with it? I'm not a huge fan of the technique we talked about before of, of starting with a kind of flash forward and then going back. It always seems like a uh-huh. cheap way of telling someone, no, stay with this. Something exciting is going to happen. Yeah. Um, I always feel like you should you should be able to draw them in with what's happening immediately. That's that old saw about, you know, s- start in the middle of the story, not... When the start with the first interesting thing that happens. Um, so I wasn't a huge fan of that. Um, Mark, was there anything that you thought was sort of a mistake, some problems with the writing? Or? No, I don't think so. I, I I don't think it's a very deep story, but as as I was saying, I think it's, it's essentially satirical. And actually, while we were talking, I was just thinking through a bit what I take the satire to be. And one of the things that occurs to me as it's written in the 50s is that it's a bit of a pushback against the sort of post-war sensibility of, you know, actually things can get really awful, but we are humans and we will survive and better things, you know, come out oh, of man, adversity. there is none of that here, <laughs> no, is there? it's kind of really the opposite of that. And um, there's been some sort of great race war. It's not really very clear. Um, well, what's it happened. certainly seems like it seems the, like the, it the, seems the, the there's people, this there's yeah. this uh, this sort of uh, Asian panic that, in my mind, sort of parachutes into the middle of the story out of nowhere. And I, I think you know this is something that the people in the fifties were thinking a lot about. I've just actually been as part of another project. I've been at the the V&A's show Cold War Modern, which is uh, there's a lot of science fictional elements in that, and it's about design and and um, film and things like that in the 50s, the 40s, 50s and 60s. And the sense of nuclear apocalypse overhanging things and and when they're sort of moving towards worrying about that or trying to escape from that. And I think some of the elements of this are very much the same sort of thing. The um, uh, wrangling between what's the relationship of emotions and rationality and how will that pan out and the thing we're saying about um, race and catastrophe and uh, and his very cynical attitude to cynicism I, I mean I think it does that does also come from Brave New World I mean I think it's it's been dealt with elsewhere but it was a sensibility that somehow uh, instead of being a, a discipline of, of science and medicine which was making you better it was really just about um, control and and sort of techniques to to help the market, which which is what this is in this story. But there's this there's this flicker of hope that he sets against all that, right? This this love story, which is tragic at the end, but shouldn't all great love stories be tragic? <laughs> I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, 
I mean, it, it seemed is he setting up an uh, opposition between love and rationality? With well, I think it, again, I think it's it's quite a sour kind of look at it. I don't think he really has any. Uh, it, it, that's the thing which feels most sort of like a puppet show, really. That the 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 wild man is not sketched at all. And in so much as he's given a character, it doesn't. You're not really very sure what it is. And ploy, and sh- ploy. I mean, her name is ploy, <laughs> ploy. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And she does nothing but stand on the veranda, mm. being white. I think my trouble is I was almost too involved in the characters, and so I, I really, really annoyed me when she didn't just blow herself up, but without even asking him, blew him up too. Uh, and I, it made me dislike her. Well, up to then, she'd been a blank, and instead she just became sort of selfish. And that was as much as I could take away about her character. Yeah, it, didn't re- it really didn't seem fair. No, I, I thought he was quite an idiot, and it des- <laughs> he deserved everything he got. <laughs> 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 but yes, perhaps I too am a bit cynical about this. One thing I would like to say, which is... Um, it, it's not really germane to anything that we've particularly been talking about, but it suddenly struck me. It, one of the things he said in one of his introductions to the Penguin collections of science fiction stories, which are probably one of his sort of great um, achievements, the three volumes he edited for that in the early 60s, is he said that there are two sort of figures in his, uh, in his view who stand over the whole history of science fiction. One is Wells, who he has a very high regard for, um, but the other is Lewis Carroll. And these three robots and the the uh, rose tree. Oh, yeah. That's, that's straight out of Alice. It, it really I mean, is. The, the, the three uh, playing card soldiers do have exactly the same response to Alice. The, the scene is, is just lifted out and, and tweaked to be something else. But there's a sort of joyous whimsy in, in Alice, which I don't think one would use... This, this story. story doesn't have much of that, no. <laughs> uh, I mean, I think, you know, I think there's a lot of that in his own sensibility, especially in his introductions to and to science fiction anthologies and discussions of other people's work. His, I mean, one of the things that he's also very well known for is uh, a vast uh, history of science fiction, originally called Billion Year Spree and then updated and called Trillion Year Spree which is well worth reading in itself. It's just a discussion of the history of the whole field and um, full of very you know, interesting observations, but it's often also very funny. Is there something about um, evolutionary psychology that uses principles that actually exist out there to create good stories? I think um, the book that struck me the most concerned, I haven't read a great deal of science fiction recently, but was... Uh, Mary Gentle's Golden Witch Breed, if that's a book you've come across. I felt like the alien society in that was really fully realised and I absolutely believed that it functioned and, and there, there was no point at which anything jarred or I thought how could that have come about or how could that persist. Um, that's probably the best example I can mm-hmm. think of. Mm-hmm. And what what books of yours have you, did, did, have you besides, of course, your... <laughs> anthropologist heroine um, yeah. <laughs> evolutionary psychologist so, oh sorry Villain, I, I keep getting the two confused yeah. um, what, what um have you have you used principles that that you learned um about anthropology to well, to, to write i mean because it seems like a very fruitful field for for science fiction certainly whenever i've tried to come up with alien cultures it's informed the way that that i've created them but the last thing I wrote, which is due to come out next month, I think, um, Anno Mortis, which is a, a zombie novel set in ancient Rome, 
Um, anthropology certainly helped with trying to imagine myself into Roman society um, tr- because I wanted it, clearly it's got to be quite a fun book, I wanted to have a modern feel, but I wanted to imagine ways of thinking that aren't the same as the ways we think now uh, and not write my characters as if they are totally modern people. And yeah, my But still human. Uh, absolutely, and that's that. I've, I went through a really interesting arc when I studied social anthropology that the first thing that struck me was, my God, other societies are so different. There's, there's so many different ways of organising it, and, and people are weird and wonderful. And then after about a year of studying it, I thought, but they're all still people, and actually the same basic drives are underlying it all. And that fed into my latest sort of study of, of evolutionary psychology, which is, as I say, why I don't believe in a blank slate, why I do believe that we have a human nature which expresses itself through different cultures but, but doesn't have an unlimited range of ways of expressing itself. And th- this story here, um, I mean, as we've said, feels like it's perhaps in a slightly adolescent way really pushing back against all that and saying, no, actually people can just be the, the entire human race can just turn into a bunch of bastards. Yeah. Well, uh, if if we're you know, it, it Wells is is one of his uh, heroes, and and what happens at the end of the human race in in the time machine is that that uh, it's um, uh, mutated or evolved into two completely different races, the Morlocks and the Eloys. Um, so there's a there's a long history in science fiction of exploring this, you know, what what will happen if aspects of our nature transform, are transformed enormously over time. But yes, I, I think that there's a sort of squib aspect to this story, really, that, that it's uh, um, yeah, a way of pushing back against a, a pervasive attitude in the 50s, which I suspect he just was a bit fed up with. So... Um, so that's what it's about. Thank you, Bex Levine and um, Mark Sinker. That's all the time we have for now. My name is Elisha Sessions. This has been A Bite of Stars, A Slug of Time, and Thou. Shyness is nice and shyness can stop you From doing all the things in life you'd like to Shyness is nice and shyness can stop you From doing all the things in life you'd like to So if there's something you'd like to try If there's something you'd like to try Ask me, I won't say no, how could I? Coyness is nice and coyness can stop you from saying all the things in life you'd like to So if there's something you'd like to try If there's something you'd like to try Ask me, I won't say no, how could I? Spending warm summer days indoors Writing frightening birds To a booktube girl in Luxembourg Because if it's not love, then it's the bomb, the bomb, the bomb, the bomb, the bomb, the bomb, the bomb that will bring us together. Nature is a language kind.